0: Okay, let's talk about reader revenue. I think it's fair to say that the last couple of years have been unique, especially when it comes to the news and the media. So earlier this year, at Parsley, we asked over 200 media professionals what their top priorities were for 2018. And it turns out that reader support models and subscriptions were the biggest priority for 33% of people, for one third of those people. Why do you think that was the case? And maybe why do you think it was the case this year in particular?
1: I'll quote Wu-Tang Clan. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Cash rules everything around me. I, I think it's all about the money. Uh, CPMs are going lower. Programmatic advertising isn't kind of living up to what it's hoped to be. And so they're looking for additional revenue streams. And there are success stories here. You have like Washington Post and New York Times that have been really great at driving subscriptions. And you have other companies like NPR that have uh, done really great jobs on reader supported models. So yeah, if they see something that works and what the current situation is right now is that uh, the revenue streams aren't working, they got to move to to where it's uh, positive.
0: Reader Support is one of the main revenue streams for Billy Penn, so thinking of success stories, they're a great example. They're an independent media organization out in Philadelphia, and they're one of the sites within Spirited Media. They have sites, I think, in Denver, um, another place too. And they're all devoted to finding new business models for local journalism, which means reader revenue is a really big deal. So this episode, we're going to talk to Billy Penn's editor, Donya Henninger, about their philosophy on reader revenue. And that includes how newsletters play a really big part in their membership strategy.
1: You Not tote bags. Not tote bags. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to the Center of Attention, the podcast exploring how digital behavior relates to the attention economy at large. I'm Megan Radonia, the show's producer, and I'm here with Parsley's co-founders and the show's co-hosts, Sachin Kamdar and Andrew Montalenti. Hi, Sachin. Yo. Yo. Hi, Andrew.
1: Hey there.
0: Hi. All right. We're all here. We've got our happy hour drinks. <laughs> it's time to talk more about reader revenue. So when I think of reader revenue in media, Paywalls are usually top of mind. And Sachin, the organizations you mentioned, some of them are using paywalls as part of their strategy. Yep. You know, Wall Street Journal comes to mind, Financial Times, they've had paywalls for a really long time. Uh, and a lot of other sites this year, like Wired and Adweek and Business Insider, have all followed suit. So, another question for you What fraction of sites in our network at Parsley do you think have implemented paywalls?
1: That is a good question. Mm. Um, huh if I had to take a guess about that, I'm gonna say 15%.
2: Yeah, I'll say a little bit lower, maybe
1: 10%. So
0: Kelsey, it's one of our colleagues, she ran an analysis on 1,870 domains in our network. And of those sites, 29% of them had some kind of paywall. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's way higher than I thought.
0: Yeah, it's substantial. Yeah, it actually kind of calls back to the survey number, like just roughly a third of people thinking yeah. about some kind of reader revenue. But there's been debate, as there usually is, about the potential for paywalls to quote-unquote save journalism. So what's your opinion on this? Do you think paywalls have the same potential for all sites?
1: No, I don't think that's the case. And I think that uh, if every single publisher out there Uh, implemented a paywall model, they wouldn't all be successful because, you know, not everybody, there's only a certain amount of time people are gonna spend on content sites, and there's only a subset of of the sites that they visit that they're actually gonna fork over their dollars for. So I don't think every single publisher or digital media company can do that. Um, But I do think it frames the way that these companies need to think about their content and audience differently, which I think is healthy, is they really have to think hard about what's valuable for the reader, the viewer, the user, however they kind of term the person that's visiting, their site. And I think that's a healthy thing to consider in a world where there are a lot of poor experiences on content sites.
2: Yeah, my perspective here is that uh, over time, every site that operates well, eventually has some sort of monetized reader product. But I don't think that you'll see 100% of sites implementing that because to operate well, I think you actually have to make your content free to grow. And so what I mean by that is, if you just launched a new publisher the other day, you don't want to launch upfront with restrictions on how people find and discover your content. You want to launch upfront trying to get as many users as you can, getting as many readers as you can, and uh, getting the awareness of your brand out there. But once you have a little bit of a loyal audience, then you can start to think about at what scale can we carve out a percent, two percent, five percent of our audience and get them to actually pay us for something special uh, that we can provide them. And I think every publisher is probably going to have that conversation of, is there a 1% to 5% of our audience who'd be willing to pay us for something more than a tote bag, maybe for some custom content, maybe for some extended access, uh, maybe for uh, deeper coverage of different topic areas that maybe are more relevant to their uh, niche or their day-to-day lives or their business or whatever it might be. So I think that that's going to be just a conversation you see happening all over the place. And I do think it will be one of the things that sustains journalism at well-run organizations. But is it the end-all be-all? Is it the thing that saves journalism? Are we all going to uh, sort of switch over to the Spotify model where we're all paying a little bit of money and it's getting parceled out to like sustain uh, creatives and journalists? That I don't think is going to happen.
1: That That's the part that I'd say is unlikely parceled, I like it. Um, there are a lot of different ways to com- to convert. It's not just a subscription model that has to work. Um, there is like the reader funded model. There is um, things that they can pay for like research or events that a lot of publishers are engaged with. Um, there's like e-commerce tie-ins. There's a lot of ways to get people to fork over some cash if you really want to push them down a funnel. Um, and it doesn't just have to be about paywalls.
0: Yeah, and that's what I really want to get into, because what I think is fascinating about Billy Penn is that they elected not to ask people to pay for a subscription, to get past a paywall. They really just go directly to people for support, and it's working. So here's Dania on growing reader support at Billy Penn. She started off by describing the model itself.
3: From the start. The philosophy behind Billy Penn was to be engaged with our readers, to not be talking down to people as if we're in some ivory tower and we know things that you don't. Um, So we want to be on the same level with our readers. So it fit right in to launch a membership program, which started at the beginning of this year. That's one of our main revenue streams, or we're working on making it one of our main revenue streams. Instead of forcing people to buy a subscription or pay for to get past a paywall, we simply ask people to give us money and they do
0: (laughs) as editor how have you worked with your team to you know launch your membership program and start to shape it
3: it's been a very involved process everybody on the team we have a very small team but everybody on the team is involved in the process because the membership mess the message for our membership program is that we care about you each individual person who reads our stories we care what you think about us uh, and about how we report and we want to want your feedback if we're going to ask for your support your financial support then we're going to care about how you what you say we really want our readers feedback we want to listen to them and make sure that that's the message we're getting across
0: and what are the the channels that you're using to reach those readers and to get feedback from them
3: Social media is probably where we are personally most active. Um, We get feedback on Twitter all the time, direct message. Sometimes on Instagram, we have conversations. Also, Facebook in the comments or on messages. We're very responsive on Facebook. And then via email, when a reader responds, uh, people will often email us questions or replies back to our daily morning newsletter.
0: Uh, So when you're looking at. You know, analytics, when you're looking at data, is there um, a metric that you're looking at that really helps you connect the reader behavior that you're seeing to your your ultimate philosophy for membership? For
3: sure. I mean, it's it's returning visitors. It's if if people are coming back to visit our site multiple times, those are the people who are primed to be newsletter subscribers and members. So the type of content we look at, what content gets recurring visitors? How what are what is bringing visitors back? again and again and those are the people that we want to become our members
0: so you ultimately see a connection between um kind of just high engagement and return visits absolutely
3: as an editor i am judged my performance is judged on returning visitors not necessarily on clicks or page views but a couple of the metrics that i'm judged on that how my performance is judged on is how many visitors return and how long do they stay the engagement
0: Especially coming from newsletter, are you ever taking a look at how much time people are spending with articles comparing that time spent um, based on their referral source, whether they come from the newsletter or from social or from search? Uh,
3: people who come from search spend the least amount of time on, on any given article. You know, they were looking for an answer. Either they clicked through and didn't find it or they don't know us necessarily. And then next it goes to Social and definitely newsletter subscribers, the newsletter referrals, people who come from newsletter stay on our site the longest. And we also have another metric that we follow, you know, uh, completed engagement on. I can't remember what our product team calls it, but that tells us whether they scroll to the end of the article and that should be higher with newsletter subscribers also.
0: You know, even if they're they're coming in and they're reading one article from that newsletter, if they read it fully and then come back the next day (laughs) to or back when they're back from their vacation (laughs) to get back into the newsletters they missed. It does. I mean, logically, it's, it's a really great sign. It means they're committed.
3: One thing I didn't mention actually about the newsletters, the goal of our newsletters is not necessarily to get people to click through to our site. I mean, that's obvious because we link to many other places in our newsletter, too. So we have a relatively we have a pretty high open rate that you know, it's hovered, it's like between 25 and 30%, which for a daily newsletter is really pretty high. Um, And that it doesn't change on the weekends, which is kind of interesting, because I feel like a lot of people are in a different place when they open their email in the morning on the weekends, but it stays at that level,
0: um, seven days a week. Wow. And that's interesting, too. So you're kind of layering on um, email specific metrics, as well as overall site metrics, and you're kind of... um, you know, like content article post-level metrics. Yeah, it's all it's all, it's all uh, about metrics. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at that funnel and uh, creating newsletters, have you found that newsletter subscribers have different behavior and different reading behavior, or perhaps even interests, than non-subscribers? Definitely, and that's where
3: some of the analytics comes in. It's interesting that I've found, you know, I can tell, actually, I, I end up using... When I look at Parsley on a daily basis, I can see the direct traffic. And that is what's coming mostly from, if it's in the morning, the spike of direct traffic is the newsletter subscribers opening our stories. And things that spike on those in the direct traffic in the morning are usually very different articles than have been popular on either search or on social platforms.
0: What's an example of an article that... um Maybe even recently in in a newsletter in the last couple of weeks that you noticed resonated with those readers um, and was maybe standout compared to what you were seeing on search or social.
3: So just yesterday, there was National Cheeseburger Day, which I consider a little (laughs) bit silly. It's a made up holiday. But we did a listicle that was Philly's best 10 best cheeseburgers for $10 or less. We put it out on social and there's so much else out there on social about cheeseburger day and. Cheeseburger listicles and things like that, that it did okay. It didn't do that great. In the newsletter, it was the most clicked article of the month, probably. I like their priorities. I like that cheeseburgers came out on top. (laughs) It's interesting because sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's the really nitty gritty, deep dive, investigative stories. Those also sometimes don't click well on social because they're, you know, complex and people don't have the time when they're scrolling through twitter or facebook to read a whole big story those stories also end up doing much better in the newsletter
0: when you get that kind of information back about what's resonating with people in in a given newsletter um, do you does that ever inform your decision making of how to frame a newsletter or what to include or just give you a better understanding of what your most loyal readers are interested in
3: you know the feedback from the newsletter the analytics looking at what people in the newsletter like definitely frames our you know thoughts about what kind of content to publish this morning we had a story that was like a really deep dive into some a news that broke yesterday so where a lot of other outlets did a piece really quickly turned around a piece that basically parroted the statements that, and the, that were said at the press conference we took some time one of our reporters already had connections in that field and did a deep dive on that story i put that at the top of our newsletter this morning and then at the bottom of our newsletter because i had an inkling that that would be the kind of story that our subscribers would like i mentioned that story and said if you want us to do more like that consider becoming a member today
0: oh that's really cool so it's all dynamic depending on day to day and what's happening and you're just as engaged with the community as they are with you, it seems. I try, I, I mean it's, I don't know how else you would do it. <laughs> I'm wondering, do you ever, um, in the same way that you know, either reader feedback or feedback from data gives you information about the content itself, does it ever uh, help you um, think about design, the design of the newsletter?
3: Oh gosh, yes. The design of the newsletter is a big issue that takes up lots of my brain power all the time. One big thing that I have been going back and forth on is whether to start our newsletter with a personal note. Like that's the trend these days, it seems, um, and it's considered it's it's considered to be like a positive thing if you're trying to get new members because it immediately starts with a personal connection, which is thought to be what. We'll get people to sign up as members if they feel personally connected to you. So like our sister websites in Denver, Denverite, and in Pittsburgh, The Incline, they both start their letters, their newslet, they both start their newsletters with a personal note and then get to the news. I have not done that yet. I, people read Billy Penn's morning newsletter as like, it's their recap of news for the day. A lot of people have told us this, that they, they depend on it. At one point, I asked in our newsletter um, at the morning, I said, hey, how about if we do this note up here and got several replies, please don't do that. They just want the recap of the news. Um, So I'm going to have to figure it out. The fact is that Denver and the Incline are doing really well with their membership programs, especially in Denver, where people are like their whole thing is they're delightful and people love everybody loves each other and. (laughs) membership is great. (laughs) In Philly, and our attitude really is a little bit more snarky. So I understand that we don't have that same kind of relationship necessarily. But maybe if I put the note in the newsletter, that'll change. I don't know.
0: Is there another way that you found or even just an anecdote about building personal relationships with readers? Um, And does that always happen online? Are there ever offline or or in-person ways to connect with this community of readers?
3: It definitely does not only happen online. So the second half of our revenue model is events and interacting with our community and our readers directly. So from the start, we've tried to host events where we interact with readers and maybe provide more information to them with a panel discussion or just provide a fun night with some cool new beer or wine tastings, or provide networking opportunities where they can meet each other. And we've really ramped that up this year. And so that's an opportunity for people also to become members. You know, At every event, we mention that we are partially member-supported. And we sometimes have little table talkers where people can go to a direct URL and donate on the spot. So that has happened. And what's also happened is that people who have met us at events don't necessarily become members right then and there but they'll become members you know within the week and we'll know because there's a little place when you sign up to become a member where you can send us a note you know tell us why and so sometimes people are like oh i met so and so at the event last night
0: as a local news site i was wondering if you face any challenges for reader support that maybe a national organization doesn't but then on the flip side i'm wondering what advantages you have like this ability to Post events and and meet with people seems like one of them
3: sure sure but two sides of the coin mm-hmm. I mean we we obviously as a, if there's a national audience you have a much bigger potential membership right so we have we do have some members who um and readers and members who are Philly expats who read Billy Penn to catch up on their home city, which they no longer live in. But for the most part, I think it's something like three quarters of our readership is in this is in this area. So that's the issue, you know, so we we don't have the breadth of a national outlet, but then on the other side, that's great. All our readers are in this area. We can go out and connect with them directly, and and we have the same we have the same cares. The thing, you know, talking about the weather is the most boring thing in the world, but it's something you can relate to with people who are in your area, and and there are many things like that. Weather is just the, the easiest example.
0: Yeah, that rings true to me. I think that's how. <laughs> if we go into you know our um, office Slack first thing in the morning, the channel for New York is how are the trains how's the weather? Is it raining yet? (laughs) Everyone's, you know, we're all in the same place. It's the first way you connect. It's amazing that these days, like you find out that
3: whether it's raining by looking online. (laughs) Yes.
0: I know going outside seems so hard sometimes. (laughs) I mean, I do it. It's true. (laughs) But I wanted to talk a little bit about how a reader support model compares to just the broader picture of what's happening right now, maybe in other newsrooms, I think it seems, it seems that subscriptions and um, paywalls, membership models have, have been something that ha- a lot of organizations have explored, especially in the past year, um, maybe as a move away from advertising. So I was wondering, have you seen any benefits from a reader support model that, that are maybe unique to it compared to uh, a display advertising model?
3: display advertising is the worst thing to happen to journalism
0: <laughs> It's
3: it, it, outlets never charge enough for online display ads to support themselves like it just was not a model that was working and things were tanking but beyond that even if they had charged enough the display ad model is bad for news it's very bad it's what has brought us to this culture of clickbait and listicles if the only thing that's supporting your site financially is revenue from ads. and the more clicks you get, the more money you can charge for ads. then you're just gonna put out content that gets more clicks. I mean it's just as simple as that. it's just a fact. And that is not good for journalism. It's just not. you don't that click things that get clicks are not usually things that are necessarily important or that things that are affect uh, uh, marginalized communities. Or things that people are that are totally new that people aren't already familiar with, they might not click. So, depending on display ad revenue, changes what kind of news you produce, and the reversion back. I'm so thrilled that the industry has realized that that's not the way to go.
0: For anyone who's who's maybe inspired by <laughs> the our, the discussion we just had and is considering a reader support model for their site, or is maybe in the midst of building it or or currently has a membership program what's a piece of advice you'd share with them what's something that uh really helped you to keep in mind as as you were um, building out engagement with your community
3: it's not about the tote bag (laughs) (laughs) you know when we were first designing the membership program we picked three tiers, and if you're at this tier, you're this level. You get this many perks, and if this tier, you get this many perks. And as we started to get members and get feedback, we realized that people were not joining because they wanted, I think, one, you know, a sticker, a laptop sticker, or they wanted, you know, a discount at a, a couple events. They were joining because they cared about our work and they liked us and they wanted to see us succeed.
0: I wanna get your guys' perspective on what we talked about with Danya from uh, not just working with media but also as company founders. I'm curious, you know, what's an element of Billy Penn's reader revenue model that you found interesting like as founders, like from your own philosophy on revenue?
1: I think Danya made it clear that they tried to experiment with like a few different ways to get readers to pay for stuff, but ultimately they found that it was about the relationship. So they had to create a strong relationship with the reader, um, whether that was through events, whether that was through their newsletters, and like getting them the information that they wanted as fast as possible. And it was that relationship that fueled their interest in supporting the company that they found valuable. Um, So like as a, a founder, that like really resonates with me. That's like one of the core things you need to do when you're just getting started is like really understand your customer what their pain points are, and then build that relationship so that we create this community, we create this relationship that is monetizable in and of itself.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it it actually brings me back to the early days of starting Parsley from the standpoint that, you know, roughly a decade ago, people were really, really down actually on subscription software companies. And they were really up on freemium as the primary model, right? So it was all like, hey, let's get as many free users as possible. And then maybe we'll uh, just charge a dollar or two for like a little utility software service. And what happened over the course of the next few years is that people realized that, hey, uh, people are willing to pay for value. And if they get value out of a software product, they'll pay for it. And that was, you know, a lesson that uh, Sachin and I took really deeply into heart. And it resulted in Uh, us really almost geeking out on the different ways that people value software products and the different ways people are willing to pay for those products if they solve a problem for them. So I think publishers right now are waking up to the potential there. I mean, just if you listen to what uh, was just discussed, you hear that, hey, uh, they are not even really trading any value. They're just saying, do you value our content? If so, pay us. And yet that's causing people to fork over dollars and cents to them. So that's pretty cool, right? That's like an indication that people on the internet are actually uh, pretty aware of like where they're spending their time and how much money they can spend uh, on a service or on a content provider in order to show the amount of value they're getting out of it. And I think that's just great.
1: All right, let's continue our conversation about reader revenue and get into the plus ones and minus ones uh, for the week. So there are all different strategies that you you can use to get people to subscribe to your content. Let's just run through a list, Andrew, and we can plus one or minus one a few of these and, and see uh, kind of where we fall. So let's start with the first one, ungating content you want to read. Plus one, minus one.
2: Yeah, I'd say that that one's pretty effective for me, so I'd give it a plus one.
1: Plus one. Extra content that is only for subscribers.
2: You know, I'll actually minus one this one. I thought that this one would be effective for me. And I think actually it might have caused me to subscribe to the New York Times at, at a certain point. But I tend to find that the uh, subscriber only content is something where I kind of want it, but then I don't end up using it as much as I thought I would. Uh, so I'll give it a minus one.
1: What about these like bundles where they're bundling print plus digital or trying to sell you on like, you know, maybe the Sunday New York Times? Uh, does that get it for you, Andrew? Yeah, that, that
2: one is fascinating. That one, I actually, there's a couple of interesting things. One is that I've noticed that some publishers have started to actually use the print edition to sort of price anchor the digital edition. And sometimes the price anchor is even confusing in the sense that they make the print plus digital edition the same price as the print edition, um, basically telling people we want you to use our digital subscription product, right? Obviously, it has a very different cost basis. Um, The thing with me is that I, I used to be very pro print plus digital, but then I got into a sort of, I guess, like minimalism or essentialism streak. And I really have been trying to pare down the number of books, magazines, and newspapers I have in my house and consolidate down to just, you know, Kindle plus iPad plus, you know, uh kind of laid back reading on digital and so on so um so i'm minus one right now even though actually this has worked on me many times in the last few years
1: i am also minus one save the trees go paperless no to print all right i know swag works those tote bags for npr um gimlet media has t-shirts does swag uh, get you to subscribe?
2: It totally does, actually. So uh, in the Wired subscription, I actually really did want the Wired YubiKey that they were selling. I was going to buy a YubiKey anyway. And for listeners who what don't know... What is a YubiKey? Yeah. So for listeners who don't know, a YubiKey is basically a um, its a device you attach to your keychain which you can connect to a computer it basically is like a USB drive you connect it to your computer and what it does is it has a secret key on it and so you can use it as a factor of authentication to secure like backups and uh, applications and things so basically the way to think of it is it's a digital key and you put it on your keychain and someone needs to have your password and that key in order to access certain systems right Um, And so the company company that sells these is called YubiKey. And Wired did a very clever uh, sort of swag uh, offering for their premium subscription, which is that they would uh, bundle a YubiKey, which normally costs maybe $30 or something. They would bundle that with a Wired logo on it um, as part of the subscription package. So that actually worked on me.
1: I'm minus one on swag. I don't think I've ever subscribed to anything based off of swag. So can't support that one. Uh, What about other bundles? So what about bundling of like, I think Spotify and the New York Times do a bundle. Obviously there's a bundle between Amazon Prime and Washington Post. What about bundling of different goods, not just the content itself?
2: I tend to be anti-bundles in general, but I'll I'll give this a plus one because I think it's an effective strategy even on me. And the kind of classic example here it's not it's not a news and content example, but Amazon really got me with their channels bundle. I sort of uh, uh, kind of went all in on Prime, HBO, Showtime, all via Amazon, kind of bundled together, and um, and it just kind of. I, I think it maybe just comes from me wanting to simplify my life and not have all these separate subscriptions. That's probably what it comes down to.
1: I, I guess I'm plus one on this. It has worked for me. Um, Prime, Washington Post, that has worked for me. Uh, they're a little sneaky about that because you think I think they auto bundle it and then you have to like unsubscribe if you don't want it. But um, I still am a subscriber to Washington Post, so uh, it has worked on me. Um, and last one here. Have you ever wanted to subscribe to something to use that as bragging rights? Like, hey, I'm a subscriber of NPR. I'm a subscriber of the New York Times. I think pretty much everyone who has
2: subscribed to The Economist at some <laughs> point did it for that reason. Uh, and I'm I'm included in that group. So yeah, totally. Uh, you just wanna tell other people that you're smart and put the magazine down on the desk and tell everyone that. You know,
1: my wife is a subscriber of The Economist. She really loves reading it, uh, the print magazine. And uh, I've never heard her brag about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, we just run in different circles. I guess so. So. I guess so.
0: And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Danya Henninger for joining us as a guest. Subscribe to the Center of Attention on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you enjoy the show, please tell a colleague or tell a friend. You can also follow our hosts on Twitter. Andrew is at amontalenti and Sachin is at Sachin Kamdar. Thanks again for listening. And remember, forging connections with readers matters. Until next time.